listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. In Los Angeles on a Saturday night in late October, the Detroit Pistons found themselves trailing the Clippers by 13, with just over four minutes to go in the third quarter. Detroit finished the game on a 38-17 run. The following night in Oakland, the Pistons staged yet another double-digit second-half comeback to defeat the defending champion Warriors. I'm Aaron Fishman. According to our guest, Duncan Smith, these exhilarating back-to-back road wins when Detroit stood at just 3-2 should be seen as important moments where this unproven unit began to develop an unmistakable confidence. Off the air, he also argued that the Pistons should be able to revisit the magic from those two nights if their confidence ever wavers, if they ever forget how well they're capable of playing. Our gracious guest, Duncan Smith, serves as a contributor for The Athletic Detroit, as well as a general NBA scribe for B-Ball Breakdown. A professional poker player for nearly a decade, Duncan went by the username CB for MVP. Playing out of Canada, most competitors mistakenly thought he was advocating for Chris Bosch to win the award, when in fact the username referred to Chauncey Billups' candidacy. It was a pleasure being joined by Duncan, who helps me get into the weeds with regard to the Pistons, a team that's pleasantly surprising many observers around the league, thanks in part to a bolstered bench and significant improvement from Andre Drummond, Tobias Harris, and Reggie Jackson, among others. The interview was recorded prior to Detroit's Saturday night loss in Philadelphia, so as of release time, the Pistons are nursing a two-game losing streak. Even so, they hold the fourth-best record in the East. Without further ado, let's bring Duncan on. Hey, Duncan, it's good to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. This Pistons team is surprising some people around the league. I'm curious to hear how surprised or not you are. But let's just start with the Pistons' comeback prowess. In half of their wins this season, that's already seven times this year, they've fallen behind by double digits at least once in the game and found a way to to come back to win. Their um, fourth quarter net rating ranks fifth in the league prior to Saturday's games. Three of the teams ahead of them are the Warriors, Celtics, and Spurs. What do you see from the team in these situations that's enabling them to just buckle down and close games so effectively? Uh, I think that they're really notorious slow starters. Um, It's a really puzzling situation. Uh, It doesn't really seem to matter who gets put out to start games, they just don't get off to good starts. And that's problematic and it sets them back. So you find yourselves in situations where you just have to come back more often than not. Whereas I think if your effort was, if the Pistons effort was more steady throughout the game, uh, you would probably not find yourself in, in so many comeback scenarios. The Pistons are fortunate uh, that their, their bench most nights uh, to some degree overwhelms most other benches. Um, You know, you'll have your off nights, um, like they had uh, Friday night against the Wizards where the bench couldn't really get anything going. But more often than not, like you'll 
you'll see that like the starters just don't really get off to good starts. And then Ish Smith and Anthony Tolliver, for example, or a couple of reserves come in and they just start changing the pace of the game. They, they have a different defensive look. They're faster on offense. Um, so, it, you know, it's not exactly something so simple as uh, the Pistons bench is better than its starters. Um, but the bench has a bigger advantage on other benches than the Pistons starters have on other starters. So I think that when you combine all those factors, uh, the slow start, the superior bench, it kind of explains pretty simply uh, why the Pistons do make these comebacks. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And we'll get more into their bench a little bit later. The bench has been playing extremely well. But you did reference the disappointing starts for this team so far. Because of the the strength of the bench, are you confident that that's not really that big of an issue? Or do you think that these slow starts are, are something that the Pistons are going to have to resolve going forward so that they don't always put themselves in this, these situations that they have to dig themselves out of? Um, I think it's a concern. I think that anything that is not functioning really well on this team is a concern because, you know, they're, I think they've proven that they're pretty good, uh, but they're not so good that they can just beat teams any way they want to. You know, like you've got the Warriors who basically like give out 15 point leads just to like keep themselves interested. Um, you, you've got teams that can just like beat you in a variety of ways. And the Pistons are not that team. So when something is as concerning as uh, a starting lineup that, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's very close to like a negative um, 10 uh, net rating for the starting lineup when it's together. I don't really know what that comes from. I have a couple of theories that I want to uh, <laughs> I want to take into the lab for a little bit before I, I start talking about them. Uh-huh. But it's concerning. Like it's it's a good thing that the bench is there to rely on. It's a good thing that the starters tend to get their feet under them as time goes on, and they they in most cases are not the same liability they are to start games. But yeah, I think it's concerning when your starting lineup can't get you out to, to good starts and you need your bench reserves led by Ish Smith, who is one of the, you know, one of the, everybody loves Ish Smith, but he is one of the worst shooters in NBA history. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, when that's what you're relying on for like um, stability, it's, it's a bit problematic at the very least. And I think that getting to the bottom of exactly why, why the, the starters can't get after good starts, no matter who's out there, um, you know, this goes back to last year when uh, Ish Smith would be the starting point guard, when the starting lineup had uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Marcus Morris rather than Stanley Johnson and Tobias Harrison. You know, like, it, it doesn't really matter who they put out there. It seems like the overall case is the same. The starters just can't win together. They just aren't effective. And uh, that's something that concerns me, and I think that it's going to have to be understood and dealt with before long. Andre Drummond is getting a lot of buzz around the league, and deservedly so. We know perennially he's one of the league's top rebounders, maybe one of the best offensive rebounders that we've seen in the NBA ever. And ahead of his sixth season, he's still only 24, but this is his sixth season in the NBA. He clearly expanded his repertoire. Now we're seeing huge improvements at the free throw line. His percentage is up from 39 last season to now 64%. Considerable passing improvement. Now he's up from 1.3 assists per 36 minutes last season, which was already a career high from him, to 4.2 assists per 36. There was a uh, Stan Van Gundy quote. He told the Detroit News recently, there were never any doubts about his ability, and he's always been a good guy. The concern was whether he was going to play hard on a nightly basis. 
And according to Van Gundy, that effort is now consistently there. What's finally clicking with Drummond, just both at the line and and how have the Pistons been able to incorporate his newfound passing ability into their offense? Well, I think that one of the main things that has really clicked for him is uh, the ability to breathe. He had uh, surgery on to repair his uh, deviated septum this past offseason. And pretty much right away, he, he lost like 30 pounds over the course of the summer. From a physical perspective, like you can see uh, a, a different guy than what we had we, we saw last year. Um, I think that this also plays into uh, increased energy. And like to me, like the energy isn't just for um, like the, the games themselves, you know, like it's also for being able to like get through uh, get through a road trip. It's also to be able to like train longer, more effectively, better practice habits. Um, all, all of these things seem to be playing out in front of our eyes, you know, like back to backs last year, he was dreadful, especially coming off of when he, the, the Pistons would have to like fly from one location to another and then play that night. Um, Sham Mohil on uh, Piston Powered actually did a, a really good breakdown on um, how, uh, how like travel could inflame like a, a deviated septum. And, you know, this went into, um, you know, he, his allergies flamed up last year as well. So like that's a big part of I think why we saw poor effort from him last year. He just didn't have the like the fuel in his tank, you know. And this mm-hmm. year it's a completely different story. Um, this year he's he's able to log forty minutes consistently on the second out of back to backs. He's done it a couple times. He doesn't really have a reliable backup. You know, Eric Moreland is, you know, he tries, but <laughs> he's not somebody that you want to count on for minutes. So Drummond has got to just be out there. And when he's not, like the Pistons are at a pretty significant disadvantage. Um, as far as the passing goes, uh, him and Avery Bradley have uh, had developed this really effective kind of synergy uh, between them on the dribble handoff. Uh, it's something that they use with uh, with great effect. Drummond has also developed a, a really good ability to, uh, to to find cutters and to pass to people who are making like runs to the rim. These are things that like we saw in flashes in the past, but it was so inconsistent and it was mixed with like, you know, some pretty, some pretty dreadful, uh, dreadful decision-making as well that um, I think that most of us were kind of um, happy for that to just be like a, a trick that came out very rarely. Um, but now this is something that the Pistons are running like a, a pretty significant portion of their offense off of. And it's, uh, I think that Andre Drummond deserves a, a ton of credit for that. Are they just playing him just on a different part of the floor, not posting him up as much this season? Yeah, he's spending a lot more time um, at the perimeter um, or at the elbow, especially when he's setting up these dribble handoffs and, and finding his cutters. I haven't checked this in a while, but he was at like less than, it was just over one post up per game um, as of a couple of games ago. And, uh, you know, it's with good reason. He's, he's one of the worst posting up big men in the NBA. Um, but, you know, now you've taken like a huge chunk of possessions. Twenty-seven and a half percent of his possessions the last two years were post-ups. You're you're taking a huge chunk of those possessions, and now you're you're running like functional offense through him instead, and it's yeah. uh, a tremendous upgrade on what they were doing last year and the year before. That sounds like a huge change, and, and it has to be exciting to watch a young guy just grow up right before your eyes, just in the matter of an off season. It, he just seems like he was just disappointing for lack of a better term, and appearing in trade rumors. He's made a huge turnaround. He's playing now four additional minutes per game. I'm sure that 
improved free throw shooting has a lot to do with that and just the conditioning too. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. Um, he he looks like he's having more fun on the floor too. You know, like you'd never see him like smiling <laughs> on the floor during a game in the past. Whereas this year, it, it seems like it's fun for him now. You know, like he said that he loves being like this point center that uh, that runs offense now, as opposed to like this plotting post up big mm-hmm. man who wasn't really good at what he was doing. You know, it's it's definitely fun for him. I think. He's playing like almost two minutes per fourth quarter more than he has played in the past. Uh, usually uh, he's playing just over six minutes per fourth quarter. And this season he's playing just shy of eight minutes. He's playing 7.9 minutes per fourth quarter. I'm looking at these numbers right now. And uh, that's that's really, really big to be able to have him on the floor for, for that kind of time. Yeah, um, you know, He's been very impactful. And to not be able to, to play him late because his free throws were a problem uh, would, would be a real shame this year. And it's really, really great. He's addressed the free throws. And I think a lot of that comes from oxygen as well. You know, he would take extra time before um, shooting his free throws in the past. And I think a lot of that came from like trying to just catch his wind. And now he's he's breathing fine, so he doesn't have to. He doesn't need the routine. He's already able to like center himself get focused and, and get that shot up without like struggling to, to breathe. And uh, actually in these fourth quarters, he's shooting 78.9% from the free throw line. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's a complete and total shift. Um, basically like everything that we thought we knew about Andre Drummond um, is, is kind of gone out the window. And, you know, I think that it really kind of calls into question everything yeah. we thought about his ceiling. Like we, we don't really know how good he can be anymore. And that's really exciting too, because I think that we kind of had an idea that maybe he would just be one of the best rebounders ever who also like, isn't a huge mm-hmm. drag on offense. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that was kind of like our best case scenario for him, like coming into the season. And now we see that he's a, a pretty big plus offensively while still being one of the best rebounders in yeah. ever perhaps. And definitely I would say the best rebounder in the NBA today. Avery Bradley has been such a consistent player on both sides of the ball. He got a standing ovation by the home crowd at TD Garden during his return to Boston. And of course, the fans in Detroit are now loving him. Essentially, I guess he replaced Contavious Caldwell Pope after the Pistons didn't want to pay him, or at least not what he was asking for. He'll be a free agent, though, after the season. How do you expect Detroit to handle that situation as it approaches? Um, I think that keeping him is going to be the top priority, uh, without a doubt. It sounds as though he's asking for a max, but I mean, like everybody's asking for a max. Derek Rose asked for a max this past, uh, you know, last season when he was talking about this coming summer, and uh, you know, asking for a max is not—it's certainly not a, a lock of any kind that that's the kind of number that he's going to end up getting, especially because very few teams actually have cap space this year. Um, and the teams that do have like max space are going to be making LeBron James pitches and Paul George pitches. So I think that those factors will make Avery Bradley's contract situation more affordable than say like, you know, coming into this past summer when I, I think that a lot of people thought that there was going to be um, more, more space available and uh, there just isn't that much out there. So you know, I, I think the Pistons are going to pay what it takes. I think they're willing to go into the, the tax, especially if what we're seeing holds up. You know, if this is a 50-win team that wins a, a playoff series, um, I think Tom Gorris is just, like, desperate for a team that's good enough for him to, like, actually <laughs> be able to justify spending into the luxury tax. He has indicated that he is, he's got no problem 
paying the tax for a winner. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be frivolously paying people right and left. You know, hopefully there are no more John Lure or Boban Marjanovic contracts out there. But Avery Bradley is a guy who has an impact on winning, I think. And he is such an upgrade over KCP in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I think that the Pistons are looking for the opportunity to be able to reward him, basically. So, yeah, whatever it takes, I think, is uh, is the plan for keeping Avery Bradley. Yeah, he's looking really good from my perspective, hitting 43% from three, strong defender as usual. Zach Lowe from ESPN recently lauded him for how hard he cuts, and I would assume it's rubbing off on his teammates. One thing about Bradley, Andre Drummond, and now this guy that we're about to talk about, Tobias Harris, all three of those guys only spent one year in college. Drummond, of course, UConn. Avery Bradley went to Texas. Tobias Harris from Tennessee. So all of those guys are still fairly young, and they've been in the NBA for what seems like a while now. So um, they're getting a lot of experience under their belt. But Tobias Harris, specifically, a quarter of the way into the season, it's looking like the best season of his career. He's shooting a ridiculous 46.5% from three on six attempts per game. I don't know how sustainable that is. Also boasting the lowest turnover rate of his career, but uh, just so impressive early on. What makes him so difficult in your mind for opposing teams to defend? I think a big thing is he's a lot quicker, I think, this season. Um, That has kind of, it's had this synergistic effect with his three-pointer and it makes it so opposing fours uh, who are kind of like trapped on an island with him on the perimeter. They really kind of have to like pick their poison you know if they if they play up close on him he can get around them with ease if they give him a step he's really really quick on that three-point shot um, his release has definitely quickened over the course of the last year and he's not hesitant either with getting that shot up so when the ball hits his hands like he's he's very quick to make his decision whether he's going to to drive or shoot so defenses really kind of have to like make a decision with him and uh either playing up close or giving him space. Um, either way you cut it is almost always a mistake with Harris. You know, the, the turnover rate being low is, I think it, it's uh, it's good and bad in that it's also an indicator that he's not really making plays um, mm-hmm. as far as like distributing or, or uh, setting up teammates. Uh, but at the same time, he's kind of like the head of the spear to some degree. So like the offense kind of like flows into setting him up. So usually like if, if he's passing the ball, it's because the drive or the shot like right off the bat just wasn't there. Um, so I think it also shows that he's making good decision. He's, he's not forcing things, but you know, it, it can't be a bad thing to have uh, a guy setting up his teammates a little bit more often. And that's honestly probably like the, just about the only complaint I have about Tobias this season this far. And um, you know, again, like, like you mentioned, like they've been around forever, but they're all pretty young as well. And Tobias is, I think he's just 25 now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm doesn't turn 26 until july yeah man like he's probably a couple years from his peak <laughs> um and i think that also might apply to like his his passing and his distribution decision making and stuff I, I think that guy andre drummond might be taking some of his assists away which might not be that bad of a problem how how things are working right now yeah honestly like as far as like the whole fits together um like it makes sense and it works and it's not as though like he's a ball stopper either. You know, like, the ball moves, the ball flows pretty much regardless of the unit that's out there right now. You know, Marcus Morris, for example, last year, not to not to talk 
ill of, of Marcus Morris. But, you know, when, when he would get his offensive opportunities, the ball would stop, you know, like everything would stop. And then Marcus would jab step from 18 feet. Um, whereas Tobias Harris, like his shots are all the flow of the offense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big difference compared to last year. And it's a big upgrade as well. It's interesting that we're going through the Pistons starting lineup and all these guys are having either career years or just really reliable as usual, yet the starting unit doesn't really play that well, at least so far. But um, I did want to ask you about Reggie Jackson. He looks a lot more impactful than he did last season. What is it that you're seeing from him that has enabled him to get off to such a strong start? Well, a big thing with Reggie is that he went from being the Pistons' best player two years ago, I, I think pretty clearly, um, to being one of the worst players in the NBA last year. Like That's not hyperbolic. hyperbolic. Like If you look at all the uh, the high-usage players in the NBA, he was, I think, uh, bottom five in offensive rating, defensive rating, uh, effective field goal percentage, uh, true shooting percentage. And he rebounded. He was, I believe, the worst regular rebounder in the NBA. He was uh, below... Um, Isaiah Thomas, who is Whoa. five of nine, <laughs> uh, and Reggie's not a small guard either. So, you know, very few teams I think can handle like having your best player become one of the worst players in the NBA. Uh, the Pistons are no different. <laughs> Basically, all Reggie needed to do, I think, is to be like at least a neutral contributor. You know, um, and I think he's been significantly better than that. He's putting up the best shooting uh, of his career. I think he's uh, his true shooting is something like fifty eight percent. I need to double check that. It was before the uh, the Friday night game against uh, the Wizards. Um, I actually have it right here. 57.6%. Like his career high before this is like 53%. Whoa. Um, you know, like this this rate would have been like second on the Pistons roster last year. And uh, he's not this turnstile defensively like he was last year. Um, he's not like blowing up on every screen. He's, he's not getting ragdolled. He's just been like better everywhere, basically. Like the improvements uh, on both ends, um, I think have have largely just come from getting his uh, his athleticism back. Things aren't as difficult for them as they were last year, mm-hmm. um, and uh, much like Andre Drummond's breathing, uh, Reggie Jackson's knee was uh, a major problem last year, and it held him back from basically being able to do anything that he wanted to. You know, he he had one quote last year where he said. Um, when he would drive, it seems like guys are appearing out of nowhere. And that's because like in the past when he would drive, like he would be blowing by guys. He had that athleticism. He had that burst and he was quick. Uh, but last year he didn't have any of that, you know, like he would drive and um, guys would appear out of nowhere because they would be able to move and react and, and close him off because he just wasn't as quick as he was in the past. And this year he's got that back. Uh, the Pistons, I think did a really good job of handling his rehab over the course of the year. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that paying off. You know, he's far from perfect. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. But uh, he is uh, very much, I think, the old Reggie. And he's able to play like third or fourth fiddle on a team that, you know, I think league-wide a lot of people thought uh, he had some character issues that would not allow him to be anything but the man. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that he's probably happier than he's ever been on a team where he has to play third or fourth fiddle behind uh, Andre Drummond, uh, Tobias Harris, and Avery Bradley. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned with Tobias, everything just kind of fits and everything just kind of fits better with um, with Reggie taking this sort of like tertiary role in the offense. Yeah, it's good to see the old Reggie back. And, and as you argued, just on both ends, the pressure alleviated off of his shoulders 
with him not being such a primary option anymore. But more broadly, the offense has improved immensely. Just looking at offensive efficiency, the Pistons have improved from 25th a season ago now to eking into the top 10, their ninth before Saturday's game. And they're also now third in three-point shooting percentage at nearly 39% after ranking 28th last season. They're attempting six more threes per game. Besides just the individual improvements by certain guys and that dramatic improvement in perimeter shooting, what adjustments have you seen the Pistons make from last season? Well, they got a bunch of shooters. Um, That's a a big thing that... Personnel? Emphasized, exactly, yeah. Um, You know, Avery Bradley shot 39% from three last season. Um, Anthony Tolliver shot 39% from three last season. Uh, Luke Kennard is, uh, you know, a shooter in the making. Um, He was one of the best shooters in college basketball last year on high volume. And he's at 40% now, too. Yeah. You know, basically, like, they went out and they got a bunch of guys who could shoot the ball. And... In, in so doing, they also allowed a couple guys who uh, who were streaky shooters at best in Mar- in Morris and KCP. Um, you know, they are elsewhere. Um, so basically, they really focused on the shooting in the offseason. They focused on the guys who could shoot. They focused on, you know, veterans. Uh, so Anthony Tolliver, you know, it, it, was, it was a real point of uh, emphasis. So like the ball movement has emphasized getting the ball to shooters. And, um, you know, now, now the Pistons just have the personnel to be able to like get those shots and knock them down. Uh, so I think that's the biggest, the biggest difference, you know, it's just a lot easier to hit your threes when you've got guys who can hit threes. Yeah. And also I just want to give you a chance here to gush more about Detroit's depth and bench play. You've talked about it a little bit, but they have all these strong outside shooters coming off the bench, Anthony Tolliver, Langston Galloway. Luke Kennard, the rookie from Duke, we were just talking about. And also the second units played really strong team defense. So Detroit's bench, what do you think? The bench is good. I honestly think the bench has probably got an advantage over almost any other bench in the NBA. I, I think they've got something like the fifth best bench net rating. I haven't looked at this myself. Um, but, you know, that story checks out. Like I, we were talking about earlier, a big part of the Pistons' success in spite of slow starts and the starting lineup not being great. Um, has simply been like the bench comes in and then they just like mow the other bench down to the ground. Like it, it's often like an onslaught, you know, it's most nights, like it, it looks like uh, teams of two different tiers on the floor when uh, the Pistons bench takes on another bench. And, um, you know, I think that was partially by design as well. Like, you know, the Pistons are a, a team and a market that uh, at least theoretically can't get stars and, there was no money this past offseason to get stars in the first place. Um, so, you know, what what you do there is you make it so when uh, when your reserves are on the floor, you're just, like, killing everybody. <laughs> and I, that's basically what they're doing. Like, if, if you look at the net ratings, uh, some of them have dropped somewhat after the last couple of games, I think, actually. Uh, the Pistons against the uh, the Wizards on Friday. And then I think the bench actually might have dropped a little bit against the Phoenix Suns in spite of like the uh, riotous blowout they had. But you know, on a pretty much on a game by game basis, like the bench is just like overwhelming other benches. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show.
This is Adam Matas at DenverStiff.com, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat Podcast. Stanley Johnson is starting only 21 in his third season of his NBA career, and I think it's probably been a mixed bag. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on him, just where he is in terms of his progression and how much further he needs to go. Well, he's better than he was last year for the most part. Um, he's also got significantly more leash to, uh, you know, he, he has more opportunity to fail this year than he did last year. Stan Van Gundy had a very quick hook when Stanley was not on last season, whereas this year he's getting his minutes pretty much regardless. And I think that's a good thing for him, especially because the team keeps winning. So usually he's he's a plus defensively, I think. He is a pretty big negative on offense most of the time, I would say. He's He's got a ways to go. He's also been battling injury all season. I think he's fine now, but he had uh, he started the season off with uh, back spasms, and he played through those and then missed some time. And then he had um, like a hip flexor issue uh, that had him missing some time as well. So it's kind of tough to really say because he's not where the Pistons would like him to be, I think. I'd say that goes without saying. I think that in certain games, he's been a, a pretty significant plus. Um, before he missed time uh, with that hip flexor, he was he was shooting the ball pretty well. Um, I think that some of his issues are coming from like the missed time and I think the specific injuries that he's suffered as well. If you look at his jump shot um, last year, it was, it was really flat. It was a line drive to the basket. To start this season there was actually some arc to it. Like it, it looked like a normal jump shot coming out of his hands. But now that we're, you know, he, he's back after suffering like the back spasms and the hip injury. Um, and those are kind of important parts of the body when it comes to like jump shooting, your, your back and your hip play a role. And so when you look at his jump shot now, uh, it looks really flat again. It, it's a, a line shot at the basket. You hope there's a way for him to to rework that and find a way to like tweak that form in season, which I think is probably pretty tough considering the lack of practice time uh, these guys get. But you know, it is concerning to see like his his shooting form regress the way that it has. Yeah, there's no need to elaborate on this. I'm just curious though. Do you think he should continue to start? Uh, you know, I I like him in a starting lineup because it allows Tobias to play the four. Just about anybody else that you put in there, like say Anthony Tolliver, I've I've had fleeting thoughts about putting him in the starting lineup, but then he probably has to be your four. And then you don't have the shooting off the bench. It just seems to be a, right. a working winning formula right now, even yeah. though Stanley Johnson's shooting numbers are not good at all. Yeah. You know, even if you go to like Reggie Bullock in order to like keep the bench intact, like he brought virtually nothing, you know, I, I've been on the Bullock is going to figure it out train for a long time, but even I've, <laughs> I've like got one foot about to hop off. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the last one even on this train. So um, <laughs> yeah, that's something that I'm actually uh, going to be spending some time on in the next little while is alternatives <laughs> to what they're rolling out there right now. You know, I, I like the idea that he's still starting. I like the fact that Stan Van Gundy is giving him again, plenty of leash, but at the same time, like it, it would be great to have a guy who can get up more than like five shots in thirty minutes. Uh, so I'm I'm conflicted. It's really hard to. You may find that it's hard for me to answer any question without expanding upon it. But this was a, this is one that's uh, difficult, I think, to to answer without expanding upon it as well. No, no, that's okay. There's a lot of complexity to the situation, and and I know there are a lot of pros and cons with his game. 
As we start to wind down, I did want to ask you a couple of things about Stan Van Gundy, but did you want to say a little bit about Ish Smith? It's his 10th team already, the Pistons, and he's not even 30 years old, but it seems like he's kind of carved a lasting spot for himself on this team and in the league. He played 81 games last season. Um, yeah. Well, how important is he to their roster? Really important. Um I kind of like to, to describe him as being uh, more than the sum of his parts because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, he's probably the worst shooter. In, he's not the worst shooter in NBA history, but he's like in the ranks. Um, <laughs> and he's shooting over 50% too. Is he just getting close to the basket a lot or just really smart with his shot selection? Uh, he's he's definitely smart with his shot selection. See, he's one of these guys who knows what he can't do. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good. That's kind of rare to find among like the really bad shooters um you know pistons fans uh will always remember josh smith for example you know uh really bad shooter had no idea what he couldn't do i think with ish a lot of it is getting to the basket he's also a pretty good mid-range shooter which you know is not something you want to rely on in general uh but i think that when you when you look at like the expectation of an average ish smith shot a decent mid-ranger is probably not the worst thing that can come when you're like a league average mid-range shooter, but like not very good elsewhere. The thing with Ish is that like, um, while he's the sum of more than his parts, uh, he also needs specific lineups around him to be effective. So he needs good defenders who will run and who will shoot, you know? So like uh, last year's uh, so-called Voltron lineup, Rod Beard from the Detroit 2s coined this lineup and it was uh, Ish, Tobias, uh, Stanley Johnson and Aaron Baines, and then a wing who was usually uh, Marcus Morris or KCP. But like that foursome, that four core, you know, it, it fit all of the uh, all the criteria there in that they were all plus defenders. Um, they would all get out and run. Stanley Johnson is basically like at his best when he's in transition. Tobias Harris was a, a great shooter last year. So like when you have those precepts in place and you've got guys who can defend, shoot, and run. Ish Smith can really flourish. You know, he's a guy who keeps that ball moving. He's a guy that can like put defenses at disadvantages. But you know, if you if you don't put guys who can turn the ball over and and like get out in transition, he's going to struggle. Like in the half mm-hmm. court, he's one of the, the least efficient point guards in the NBA, um, and he's not especially efficient in transition. But it's just like the sheer volume of transition opportunities kind of makes up for it. So yeah, he's he's a guy who needs like specific things in place. And um, sometimes Stan Van Gundy's uh, chaos bench rotations don't don't really help that out because every so often you'll have uh, you know Ish Stanley Johnson Reggie Bullock uh, Eric Moreland and I think John Lure was a lineup that's seen the floor earlier this year like find one guy who can hit a jump shot in that lineup you know so it's uh, it's something that works pretty well when it's uh, when it's implemented right and I think Van Gundy has for the most part done a good job of putting the pieces in place to uh, to help Ish flourish. I just wanted to say I really appreciate you joining me, taking the time on this busy basketball weekend to talk about the Pistons. Just a couple more questions for you. Van Gundy holds the incredibly rare dual title of head coach and president of basketball operations. And even if we forget about president of basketball ops, just the dual assignments of coach and executive are declining league-wide. We saw that with Doc Rivers and Budenholzer, for example, but how are you feeling about Van Gundy's handling of those incredible responsibilities so far? 
Um, I think with the exception of a couple of questionable signings, I think he's been pretty, uh, he's handled the, the job better than most, like the dual role job better than most. I think that the description of the role is kind of overblown um, in some ways, though. He's the president of basketball operations, but he doesn't run things day to day. That goes to Jeff Bauer, uh, who is the team's general manager. So, you know, like big things like trades go through Van Gundy. Like when we we see the, you know, signings in the summer, like obviously those go through Van Gundy. But I, I don't think that, um, you know, there have been some signings that are indicative of a coach and GM or coach and PBO, for example. Um, you know, Van Gundy is... Uh, very firmly under the opinion that uh, this market, the Detroit market, um, really can't get a star. So as such, you have situations where he overpays for guys that he really likes. So like John Luer got a contract probably twice as much as what he would have gotten if uh, if Van Gundy like chilled out and <laughs> took a look at what the market was going to be for him. Even if Van Gundy is right and there is a premium that you have to pay to get people to come to Detroit, um, I, I'd say that's probably significantly above the premium. You know, I'm, I'm sure that Van Gundy would love to have the $21 million that he spent on Boban Marjanovic back. Uh, some of that came from the fact that they were just trying to outbid the Spurs and make sure that they paid more than the Spurs were willing to match because Boban was a restricted free agent. And in that climate two years ago, uh, restricted free agents had a pretty significant advantage. That's no longer the case anymore. Like, I see the rationale in taking a flyer on, on Boban two years ago, but it sure looks bad now. The Pistons hard capped themselves at noon on July 1st for Langston Galloway, who provides you virtually nothing but shooting. You know, things like that are definitely problematic. Um, but at the same time, you've got a guy who who turns uh, the shell of Brandon Jennings and Ersan Ilyasova uh, into Tobias Harris, who is shooting almost 50% from three uh, on six attempts per game. You know, he's... He doesn't lose trades. That's kind of the thing that we've we've decided is just like this mantra here in, in Detroit. Uh, Van Gundy doesn't lose trades, uh, but he makes bad decisions on uh, on July first. Um, <laughs> so you know, if if we take the good with the bad, I guess that um, you know I think the good outweighs the bad. I think that I think that if you look at the GMs across the league, uh, if you simply like examine uh, Stan Van Gundy as uh, as a basketball executive exclusively and eliminate the coaching. Um, I still don't think that you have like a bottom half GM. You might have uh, even somewhat better than a bottom half GM. And I think that he has, I think that he's demonstrated some knack for the job in, you know, not selling low on Reggie Jackson or Andre Drummond, for example. You know, like these are things that definitely could have happened if, if Van Gundy wasn't patient and yeah. uh, taking a long, a long view. And, there were people, I think even some some pretty smart people who thought that Van Gundy should be selling low on those guys and just getting rid of the quote-unquote uh, locker room cancers, which is uh, to some degree, I think, what a lot of people thought that Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond really were. And uh, I, I think that um, this has not just been a, a redemption story for Andre Drummond and Reggie Jackson, but I think that it's been to some degree a redemption story for, for Stan Van Gundy as well. Um, you know, noon hard cappings notwithstanding. To a certain extent, do you think this could be a make-or-break year for Van Gundy? Maybe not necessarily his presence in the organization, but keeping the dual roles? I don't really think so. I know that what he ultimately wants to do is coach. Um, I think to some degree, like having that that PBO title is as much like a, a, 
safety blanket or job security for him as anything, you know, like after going through Orlando and Dwight Howard, um, I think he just wanted to, to be able to like have assurance that, that he is going to ultimately get to call the shots, like not just like personnel shots, but like shots for his own employment, you know, and I, I can kind of understand wanting to maintain that role too. You know, like uh, I know, I know Tom Goris is uh, personally close with Andre Drummond, for example, if things had gone sideways last season, like truly sideways rather than just like supposed uh, percolating uh, dis- unrest uh, below the surface. You know, I, I think that Van Gundy would probably be very happy to have a dual role in the extra assurance of his continued employment. You know, I don't really think that we're going to see that role change again. I think he's done a pretty decent job uh, with that, with that dual role. I don't necessarily think that this is a case where, um, you know, like Doc Rivers, like if you're a Celtic or you beat the Celtics in the playoffs, you're going to get a big contract and you're probably going to get a first round draft pick traded for you. You know, Van Gundy isn't making like those, like the Doc Rivers mistakes, for example. Um, you know, he's, he's not been a perfect executive, but I think he's been probably like a, at least like a small plus to some degree. And when you factor in the trades that he's like, not just one, but like, uh, you know, I'm sure Rob Hennigan's job status probably took like a, uh, a pretty significant nosedive after getting fleeced for Tobias Harris the way that he did. Um, You know, like (laughs) he's, he's a, he's an executive killer with some of these trades that he's pulled off. So I, I don't necessarily think that we're, we're reaching like a boiling point or a breaking point or anything for the dual role. Uh, when it comes to Van Gundy. This is the last question, I promise. I'll let you get on your way. Nearly three weeks ago, Van Gundy wrote an op-ed column for Time Magazine in which he advocated for the patriotism of players who protest injustice and inequality. And I know it's hard to separate the deeper underlying issues from what Van Gundy wrote about and, and what he's spoke about publicly, but in your mind, what kind of a statement does his standing up for his players and the communities where a lot of them come from say about his particular brand of leadership, if anything? You know, I think in the locker room, I think it's appreciated. Um, you know, I, I would say that the player population and the coach population and uh, like the, the basic like NBA uh, population at large, um, when it comes to like people and organizations and players and coaches and stuff, I, I think that they lean fairly, um, you know, I guess we could just say they lean fairly liberal. So I think that uh, it's probably fairly, I think it's well regarded in in that locker room um, that he does take a stand. Um, You know, it's not, it's a, it's not a stand that is, that simply comes with, uh, you know, like social brownie points in that, like it's appreciated by his players, you know, you know, Metro Detroit and Michigan areas in particular are, uh, something of a red and blue melting pot. And there are, are a lot of people in, in the Metro Detroit area and in Michigan um, and the Pistons fan base who, who don't look kindly, you know, on, on Van Gundy's comments about Trump, for example. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a significant portion of people who have checked out on the team because they don't like the coach's politics. And I, I think that my opinions on this have been like well-documented on Twitter and elsewhere. So I won't, I won't sell your uh, your podcast with my own um, leanings, but you know, I I, I think that um, it's pretty unfortunate that like there are people in in this area who have checked out on uh, 
checked out on this team because Van Gundy speaks his mind. Um, I think that it's unfortunate that, um, that that's sort of the reaction that it's had. But at the same time, I think that it's noble of Van Gundy for continuing to put himself out there and, uh, you know, be willing to, to eat some of this backlash uh, from his own fans, his own supposed fans, I might add. Um, yeah. In, in order to like support his players and to really wear his heart on the sleeve. And I think that that's one thing that, that people who appreciate Stan Van Gundy appreciate about him is that you, you really always know what you're dealing with, with him. There's, there's really never a time when you're, you're not sure where he stands on something. And, you know, you know, in, in polite company, sometimes it's fine to not know exactly like what somebody's thinking all the time. Um, but you know, when you're a basketball coach and you're a leader in your community, which, you know, Stan Van Gundy is, I think that it's a good thing to know, to know where that man stands. And, I've got nothing but praise for him for that. Yeah, I agree with with you completely. I think that it's really unfortunate, but not that surprising in these polarized times that some people are upset about it or have tuned out from following the Pistons. But as you said, Stan takes a stand. It's heartfelt. You can tell it's genuine when he's talking about this. It's not just standing up for his players, even though that's a huge part of it. And that's admirable. Thanks again for joining me. You know so much about the Pistons. I'm sure you've forgotten more about them than I've ever known. But thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. I really appreciate it.